There's a story of a pastor who began at a church and preached a message on a Sunday. And then the following Sunday, he preached the same message. And thinking that he just got confused, nobody said anything. And he came back the third Sunday and preached it again. And finally, somebody said, Pastor, you've preached the same sermon three weeks in a row. Why? And the pastor just responded and said, well, when you start living out the first sermon, I'll move on to the next. (laughs) As we entered into the missions conference and keeping with that theme, I preached from Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, two weeks ago. This morning, I am preaching from Luke 16, 19 through 31. I assure you, it is not the same message. I'm not preaching the same sermon, but rather that two weeks ago, what we emphasized and what we talked about were two men before death, two men at death, and two men after death. Today, what I want to look at is to learn something different from that text. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 16. And I want to bring to you a message that this morning I've titled The Reality of Hell, Nine Truths About an Eternity Apart from Christ. For those of you using the Bibles in front of you, you can find today's text on page 823. And as always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 16, and beginning in verse 19, this is what we read. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come also, or also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should arise from the dead. May be seated. It was William Booth who once said, I would that you could spend a weekend in hell and hear the shrieks and the groans of the damned in hell 
and that you could smell the burning flesh of those in torment. He goes on and says, Then, then you would come back preaching the gospel of Christ with greater urgency. I have to believe that our unwillingness to preach Christ and preach the gospel is not only that we think less of Christ than we should, but also that we think less of hell than we should. But the gospel is incomplete if we do not speak of the judgment of the Lord. Without judgment, there is no need for forgiveness. Without judgment, there is no need for grace. And without judgment, there is no need for Christ. But to speak of hell is to speak of one of the most offensive concepts of all. For many, the greatest sin is to speak of God's judgment of sin. And for many, the greatest sin is to speak of the place where sinners would go. And so in the name of being unoffensive, we speak nothing of hell. The headline of this year is the inclusion of artificial intelligence into all things, into nearly every task. People are beginning to use it for research and to write papers and even for sermons. For the fun of it this week, I went in and I asked one of those artificial intelligence apps, how would you describe hell? And this is the response I got from a robot. I understand your request, but it's important to approach this topic with sensitivity and respect, considering various cultural and religious beliefs. References to concepts like hell can be deeply personal and hold significant meaning for different individuals. In a sense, so far, that's not untrue. It just defines that we speak of it more sensitively. But then it goes on. If you're looking for quotes that touch on the theme of eternal separation or loss, I'd be happy to help you in a way that's considerate and meaningful. But we don't need to talk about hell. That's from a robot. Like William Booth, I am convinced that one of the reasons of the lack of the Great Commission is a lack of conviction about hell. If it were indeed such a horrendous place, how could we not preach to those who we love? And let me remind you that we, as believers, are to love everyone. And so this morning, I want us to go back into the book of Luke. And this time, I want us to learn nine truths, nine realities about hell that we may be convinced then to share the gospel now. And as we learned last week from from Steve, the idea of preaching it boldly. The first truth we learn is that hell is a real place. Hell is a real place. When the rich man opened his eyes, he found himself not in an eternity of nothingness, but in the torment of Hades, it says. His lifestyle, by his lifestyle, this rich man has rejected the reality of hell. His life was one of luxury and wantonness. And far more real and far more relevant to him was the life before him, not the life that awaited him. But scripture warns us that hell is not disputable. It's not a place made up by the imaginations of people. In fact, when people make up a version of hell, what they envision is a place of endless entertainment and even lighthearted licentiousness. But hell is none of these. It is real, and Jesus warns. 
If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In the end times, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The author, Robert Benson, writes of a priest in his work, Between the Dreaming and the Coming True. And in the story, the priest is confronted about his belief of the all-inclusive love of God and how that must impact his belief on hell. And so with a grin, having faced this question many times before, the priest answers calmly, I believe that there is a hell. I just don't believe there is anyone in it. To hold such a belief is one of the most unloving acts that a person can maintain. It not only denies the reality of hell, it denies people the opportunity to escape such horrendous condemnation. It leaves them to flounder into their sin. True love would preach a true eternity because true love would seek to be absolutely truthful, never desiring that someone find themselves in such a horrific place for all of eternity. And so we learn that hell is a real place And because hell is a real place, second, I want you to note that it is an unexpected place. Hell is an unexpected place. By ignoring that which awaits people, by ignoring that it's a genuine place, many people find themselves stunned when they end up there. They'll be stunned and shocked by their sudden appearance in a place of eternal condemnation. The rich man had his lavish lifestyle. He lived blissfully in his lifetime. Verse 19 says he was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. He gives the impression of living a life of joy, but that joy is only counterfeit. It's merely a fleeting pleasure. It may have brought delight for a time, but it was gone in the next instant. There is no mention of it in the text going with him. So enthralled was he with this lavish lifestyle that he gave no thought to eternity. And now he finds himself unexpectedly in the depths of hell. He's not alone in this. Jesus speaks of those who expected to find themselves in heaven, but otherwise landed in the same abysmal pit of separation. Matthew 7, he tells us the following story. He will know people by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are many people who find themselves in this position. It says the way is narrow. They're distracted from thoughts of heaven by their thoughts of this world. And masquerading as joy, this world has deceived them into thinking that they are living the full life, oblivious to the fact that they lack genuine joy that can only come from the genuine author of joy. It is incumbent upon believers then 
having experienced the pure joy that comes from the experiencing the forgiveness of sins, that we then lead others towards that pure joy as well. Desiring that they are not content with nothing less, lest they find themselves unexpectedly suffering without joy for all eternity. Their lack of joy will be apparent to them. Because what we learn in the next place is that hell is a wakeful place. This is not a place where one remains asleep, never aware of his or her current circumstances or current state of affairs, but instead is very aware that he's surrounded by suffering for eternity. Verses 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. (coughs) The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. When he lifted up his eyes, the rich man saw. He was awake. He was able to see and interpret what was going on around him. And so he's awake, seeing, and feeling everything that is going on around him. He's not only awake, he's also aware. In this constant state of misery, he can do nothing to improve it, though. So he's awake, he's aware, he's also alert. He not only sees and feels, but his senses are likely intensified, assuring that he feels as he never felt before. In this physical life, sin has dulled our senses so that we do not see or feel as we could or should. But in death, those corporal consequences of sin, they're removed. And in eternity, one will feel, taste, smell, see as they should. Those in heaven will thoroughly experience joy as it should be enjoyed. But those in hell will thoroughly experience suffering as nobody should want to experience. This eternal place is one of unquenchable fire. It's always burning, but never extinguishing. And so it is for those who end up there as well. The unquenchable fire means that each of those there will always be in the flames, but they will never be consumed. They will feel the scorching flames, but they will never find relief. They are awake and alert for their suffering, and they will never find the peace that they desire. While speaking of the time when his death and resurrection and ascension would come, Jesus assures the disciples that he will one day send the Holy Spirit, though he himself would be leaving them. And in the context of that, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Though this is a peace that is needed most of all, it is a peace that those there will never hold. Alert to their suffering, the time has passed, and no longer will they have the opportunity to find that peace anymore. They will never know a peace like the peace that we experience for those of us who believe in Christ. There's something heartbreaking about the reality that 
the peace we now have as believers will one day be perfected in heaven. It will be better than the peace we have here. But the peace that unbelievers think they have now will be destroyed and they will have no peace at all. Now is the time for us to show ourselves different from the world by a testimony of peace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is the time to call others to come to this peace. Because when they are fully awakened to their need, it will already be too late. Hell is a wakeful place when they will be most aware of their need for peace. I want you to consider forth that hell is an immediate place. It is an immediate place. Notice what happens in verse 22 to 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he opened up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He died, he opened his eyes, and immediately he saw what was going on around him. That's part of the point. In death, the rich man had closed his eyes and then he opened them again. It was quick, it was like that. He died, he was buried, and he opened his eyes, and he finds himself in Hades. He had no time to say goodbyes. No time to prepare himself for what he was going to encounter. He didn't even get to rehearse any answers in case, by chance, he did meet Christ. The psalmist warns that this is the destination of the wicked, saying the wicked shall return to Sheol. Once there, they have no opportunity to turn back. Certainly, there's no time to turn back to God after death. The rich man here has pleaded with Abraham on several occasions. But each time he is seen to have received his just payment. We don't even know that he had opportunity to repent before his death. The text simply says he died. He did not have the opportunity in his final breath to utter even a final plea to the Lord. So not only is death too late, but those final moments may be too late as well. The rich man had lived in a, his way, life in a way that ignored his future destination. Though by his wealth he may have appeared to be wise at death, he's revealed to be foolish. The various proverbs warn against this behavior, noting that it's exactly where foolishness leads. What this rich man lived is exactly what we see as foolishness. The destination of hell awaits those who turn from wisdom, who is Christ, and instead follows foolishness. You need to know something about foolishness. According to Proverbs, foolishness is loud. She's crying out noisily to deceive all that she can. The woman folly is loud, it says in Proverbs 9. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest pieces of the town, calling out to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Foolishness calls out. And just for reference, Proverbs 1 says that wisdom cries out in the streets. And in the market, she raises her voice. So wisdom here is not hidden. 
we often treat it as something very difficult to find, but it's revealed, specifically it's revealed in Christ because he is wisdom. So seek Christ and you find wisdom. But while wisdom cries out, foolishness cries out as well. And sometimes discerning between the two is what becomes the issue. And those who succumb to foolishness they will find themselves without opportunity to turn from their ways of foolishness when they discover the truth of death. By then, because hell is immediate, it again will be too late. And now then is the time to reveal the gospel message. When the deception of foolishness is abundant, such sharing is it's not a one-and-done event. We don't just share once but rather it becomes this investment of time and it requires of us a level of patience that comes from God. So entrenched in their ways, such sharing will take somebody who is willing to set aside themselves and instead very patiently come alongside, knowing that such a task of conversion is not always immediate. We're uncomfortable sharing. But what awaits them in eternity is far more uncomfortable than what awaits us while we share. Because hell is an immediate place. We share patiently to the point that we'd be willing to endure hurt from people when they reject the very truth we share. So hell is a real place. It is an unexpected place. It is a wakeful place, and it is an immediate place. I want you to note now, it is also a distant place. It's a place separated from all others, existing far away from all other places. It is by itself, and those who inherit it as their final destination are by themselves as well. Again, verse 23 and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The rich man's eyes have to drift far away to even catch a glimpse of Abraham and Lazarus. It's not like they're right here at his side. They're not immediately near. They are way out there. And to capture that idea further later on in the text, it explains that there's this great chasm that exists. It separates the place from all others. And thus it separates all its inhabitants from all others as well. R.C. Sproul reminds us the very first negative judgment we find in the Holy Writ in Scripture is a judgment of loneliness. God said it is not good for man to be alone. The pain of separation reminds us of the depth of our connections. For it is an absence that we truly understand the value of presence. God's perfect design is for people to not be alone. Those relationships are God's means of directing people to a relationship with him. And time, when it is no longer possible to turn back from the Lord, the judgment he issues is one of separation from others. And how horrible of a judgment this is for those who face eternity. Thomas Schreiner writes, A smile from another person is something that no one in hell 
will ever receive. Those who find themselves there will never again enjoy friendship with others, nor laugh over a meal, merely appreciating the, the pleasure of someone else's company. The relationships we have here and now are purposeful. We serve the Lord by using our relationships for him and his glory. And so living in a place of separation, never again will those people be on the receiving end of someone else's kindness. And so in our relationship with people, having been equipped with this gift of kindness, it comes by the very work of the Holy Spirit. These people that he's placed in our paths should be the recipients of a work of kindness. By our kindness, we remind them that the Lord is kind. And we convince them of their need to turn to him. Lest they spend an eternity never experiencing an act of kindness again. And by our kindness, we differentiate ourselves from others. I fear that as a culture, we've lost kindness as a value. Maybe not individually, but as a culture as a whole. And so in light of losing kindness as a value, what better way for believers than to point people towards the Lord than by distinguishing ourselves with a mark of kindness? Hell is a distant place. It is separated from all other people where they will never find, experience a kind word or a kind action. And so let us show them the eternal kindness of God by sharing the earthly kindness he has gifted to us. The existence of someone who is eternally separated from others, it speaks of the excruciating nature of this eternal condemnation. Verse 24, And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And so I want you to note six. Hell is an agonizing place. Hell is an agonizing place. It is a torturous place where relief cannot be found. The rich man is in such anguish that he seeks a reprieve from someone else. But in isolation, there is nobody there to help him. And notice that his discomfort is so intense that all the rich man seeks is, is just a finger, a finger of water on the tongue. Even something so small would provide alleviation from the intense pain because this is a place of intense agony. Matthew 13 shares, They will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says that twice in the same chapter. Such a place is one of an eternal fire that never consumes. It's further described by Jesus, not just as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth later on in Matthew, but as a place of intense darkness. The weeping and gnashing of teeth is associated with anger. Psalm 112, verse 10, it says the wicked man sees it and is angry, and so he gnashes his teeth and it melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. As we discussed two weeks ago, this rich man seems to think that he's been treated very unfairly. No doubt this is a thought of many who find themselves there. 
Many are likely to be angry with the Lord. And the depths of hell to them and to many today are inconsistent with God's goodness. Some even go so far as to rationalize it by suggesting that hell is merely a symbolic place. Much like the preacher, the priest that I mentioned earlier. But to those who would say that it's only a symbolic place, Steve Lawson would respond and say, a photo as a symbol of a sunset never fully captures the reality of the sun setting. A symbol never portrays the full reality. A painting, no matter how lifelike, will never capture the true essence of the person it depicts. So if we read scripture and think that hell is only symbolic in here, then it only stands to reason that we don't even have a full picture, that hell is actually a lot worse than what we think it is. If this is only symbolic, it's not capturing the true depths of the agony. Our suffering here is nothing compared to the suffering there. And despite what people say is not a proof of God's lack of goodness, on the contrary, it's actually proof that he is good. As part of being just, God must punish sin. And the consequences of sin must be severe. But his provision for rescue from eternal agony shows his goodness. Without his eternal rescue, we would all be there. Those of us who have been recipients of the Lord's goodness would do well to call attention to this very attribute of God by the way we live. May we live out goodness so that others may desire to know the God of goodness as well, seeking refuge in him and away from the place of eternal agony. This place of eternal condemnation is an agonizing place, a place of misery and suffering. But it's an agonizing place for actually a reason that may surprise us. Hell is an agonizing place because it is a haunting place. This is what I want you to know. Seventh, (coughs) hell is a haunting place. Look at what it says in verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. It is a haunting place because hell is a place of eternal remembrance. As with many things, remembering is both positive and negative. There's a joy of remembering the past times with those we love and thankfulness for remembering past blessings that God has given us. But on the negative side, there's the remembrance of past wrongs and past mistakes or even past missed opportunities. The book of Lamentations begins with a remembrance of the things as they once were in Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. It begins as a remembrance of times that were good, but only then leads them to a remembrance of all that they lost because now they've been conquered. And it's a haunting memory of everything they lost because of their disobedience which it says in the next verse, Jerusalem sinned grievously. 
I suspect that many of us know what it is like to be haunted by our memories of past offenses, carrying those convictions without relief. What a great thing that in heaven those will be wiped away, but in hell that state will become permanent. Death does not allow a person to escape from their past wrongs. They will be haunted every day by every deed of wrong and every act of selfishness. While there, they will remember every opportunity they had for turning to the Lord. Their conscience will accuse them eternally, so they will never forget the Lord's faithfulness, who in their physical life faithfully pursued them, that all might come to salvation. They will remember every instance of rejection and indifference. Only in heaven will the haunting remember reminders of sin pass away. And before it's too late, they need reminders of the Lord's faithfulness. And where do those reminders come from? From believers who point to the Lord's faithfulness by being faithful themselves. They're faithful in carrying the burden of an unbeliever. They are faithful in pointing them to the Lord in all things. And they are faithful in sharing the gospel, reminding others that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Hell is a haunting place, but it is escapable to those who will call upon the Lord before death. But for those who will not call upon his name, hell is an inescapable place. Hell is an inescapable place. Verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There's a great chasm fixed between hell and all other places. Death allows no escape of the agony of this place, nor will their haunting memories ever cease. Speaking of the final days in Daniel 12, first two verses tell us, At the time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen, there never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It is an everlasting place, a place of which no exit can be found. Tormented physically, haunted by their memories of missed opportunities, their time becomes a symphony of anguish. It is here that time loses all meaning, and all that exists are a perpetual cycle of suffering, an ongoing misery without respite. Isolation becomes their constant companion, but worst of all, as a place of darkness, that envelops them, it will become a place without hope. In life, every unbeliever, or even an unbeliever, may live every day with the hope of a tomorrow. The tomorrow could be better. See, but in eternity, that hope is extinguished. As things are then, they will always be 
because hell is an inescapable place. It is a place that we could not wish upon those we dislike the most. If we wish to see others avoid such a place, it is on us to share both the realities of this place and the realities of Christ. Few want to talk of such a place. And so we must talk with gentleness. With gentleness, we explain the message of hope, the message of sin and separation, and yet also of sanctification. And with gentleness, we implore them to look upon the Lord. Hell is an inescapable place, and yet it's the place that people want to escape the most. Finally, I want you to know that hell is a desperate place. It is a place that one is desperate to escape. But of course, we just said it's inescapable. And so if somebody's going to be stuck there, they become desperate to find relief. As we saw in verse 24, when the rich man pleads, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But of course, relief is not found. And so with no escape, with no relief, desperation now takes another form. Manifested in verses 27 through 31, it says, And he said, Then I beg you, this is the rich man speaking, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, But if someone goes to them from the dead, Sorry, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He's saying here that the people will not even be convinced if there are these sign gifts. James 5 tells us that the Lord will please, will heal as he pleases. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that those sign gifts have gradually ceased. And so our belief as a church in our doctrinal statement, you'll find that some of these have passed away. What we find here is that even if they were in existence, they wouldn't even listen to it. Rather, what Abraham affirms is that the word comes by hearing. And so as pain and agony and suffering manifest itself, it converts people. Those who regarded God as nothing in life now regard him as everything in death. And so when salvation cannot be found for themselves any longer, their desperation turns to those that they know and love. But in that moment, it's already too late. They've lost their opportunity, not just for their own conversion, but to be able to share with others. How is it that someone in hell has more passion for the Lord's truth than many people here? How is it that someone who has spent a lifetime rejecting Christ as Lord is now more eager to share the gospel 
than so many here on this earth who have claimed to have accepted Christ as Lord for their entire lives. Hell's a desperate place. And because it is a desperate place, we must desperately plead with them in this life so that they may be ready for death. It requires us to have a measure of self-control. In desperation for their souls, we must maintain a level of self-control that doesn't unnecessarily offend them and cause them to reject Christ and God forever. And yet at the same time, we must have enough self-control that we are compelled to share, regardless of the consequences. The greatest sin in our day is a sin of offense, in which we're so scared that we may offend someone, we're unwilling to share with them at all. But there is a point when we must share because our lack of offending them will not offend them all the way into hell. And so because hell is a desperate place, we share desperately about the only one who can save them. Those who would say that life is a hell on earth have no idea what they speak of. It's a place in which the suffering is incomparable to anything we would know here. It is a real place. But love would not deny the reality of hell. It is an unexpected place. But while people are deceived with this counterfeit joy on earth, we teach a true joy that is found in heaven instead. Hell is a wakeful place. And in torment, people will seek a peace they cannot have. So we share our peace now, the peace that comes from the Lord. It's an immediate place, striking at any moment. And so we share patiently, even until the last possible moment, so they do not find themselves immediately there. It's a distant place, a place where they are separated from others, never knowing an act of kindness again. And so we show them as much kindness as we can now that they may look upon him and have a glimpse of an eternity that may exist without it. It's an agonizing place. It's full of agony and anguish. And though it may cause them to deny God is good, we can live in such a way that shows indeed God is good. And they only need to come to him to experience that goodness. It's a haunting place, reminding them of their lost opportunities to repent. But by our faithfulness to share, we remind them of God's faithfulness to forgive. And it's an inescapable place whose horrors cannot be described. And so with gentleness, we share the realities of what would await them. And finally, it's a desperate place. And yet with self-control, we compel ourselves to share regularly and repeatedly. The reality of eternity's awfulness comes, causes us, or should cause us, to speak boldly to those who face eternity spent there. What do you notice about that list I just gave you? Because it is a real place we speak the truth and love. Because it is an unexpected place we speak in joy. We speak in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, and in self-control. Through that list, you get the fruit of the Spirit. Those who have genuinely believed upon the work of the Christ are recipients of this spirit 
that he has promised to impart. And the outworking of that spirit is that we can live lives full of the spirit and in the fruit of the spirit. That fruit should flow out of our lives continually so that every action and every circumstance and every relationship is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so that includes the gospel, when we share the gospel. One of the ways in which the fruit of the Spirit finds its usefulness is in the Great Commission. So how do we share the gospel? By living in the Spirit and allowing the fruit of the Spirit to then come forth out of our lives. And showing them who God is. Eternity doesn't begin at death. Eternity begins today. And so will we be like the rich man who desires to preach the gospel at death? Or will we be like Stephen who desired to share today, before his own death, before all opportunity was lost? Let's pray. Our Father God, we look upon texts like these that speak of this eternal separation from you, Lord. And Father, I pray that it causes us to be thankful for the gift of life that you've given us, this eternal life that you've given us, Lord. Father, may it cause us to rejoice in what you've done, Lord, and may it cause us to worship you, to come before you and throw ourselves before you in just humble adoration, knowing that you are a good God who has given us what we don't deserve. But Lord, we recognize that there are those that don't know. And Father, what awaits them is described for us in Luke 16. It is a place of torment and eternal fire, and yet a never-consuming fire, Lord. Father, it's a place of agony and suffering. Father, may we wish that, not wish that on anybody. And so may it compel us to have the same desire that you have, to desire that all men would be saved, all people would be saved, and come to a saving relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And so, Father, may that be the conviction of our heart today, this week and forevermore. May we worship you by sharing your truth with all those we come in contact with. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.